You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. This episode of Digital Noise is brought to you by Film Movement Plus. The streaming service Film Movement Plus opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But, as a listener of Digital Noise, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial, plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code NOISE. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Now, the almighty return of digital noise. <laughs> and now, things are different. Things have changed while the scourge of Aaron has been temporarily defeated and he's been put into the raft. A new villain rises to power, threatening this week's titles with possible disdain or maybe joy. Presenting the jungle son himself, what about John Golson. Calculated indifference. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get the feeling from this week's list there's going to be a decent amount of calculated indifference. Mm-hmm. Am I am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. This is a very, uh, you know, there's <laughs> there there are some beloved movies in this stack. Uh-huh. There are some beloved movies in this stack. I will say that. There are some things that people would, like cling to as like, oh, that's one of my favorites. None of my favorites appeared in this stack. But there are movies in here that are that are beloved. Depending on who you are might be beloved. Or might be met with, uh, you know, indifference. I don't know. But I remember when I handed you the stack, you looked at it and you went, you kind of gave me this look like I've just teased a dog with a treat and then took it away. Oh, well, <laughs> there were a lot of things in here that I've seen before and didn't like the first time, but I'm always ready to give things a, uh, you know, a fair shake and see if, uh, see if they catch me differently at different ages, different times of my life. So, yeah. No, me too. And there's a lot of stuff in here that I never saw before, too, like I, that I really wanted to. There's a couple things that I've, I think there's a, there's more than one here that I was like, I remember really liking, but I also remember the more I thought about it, not liking it as much. And there's stuff in here where I'm like, oh, I was the one person who defended this at all, but very sl- barely when it came out and everybody hated it. And now people are going, you know what? I think it's kind of amazing. And I'm going, what? What movie did you see? So I was dying to see it again. And I'd like to confirm that I think I was right the first time around. But we'll get to that. 
But let's get started with our digital noise, and we're going to get started with what is considered to be many a classic of Japanese cinema, the independent and very low-budget-looking zombie action film from 2000 called Versus, directed by Ryue Kitamura, which I acknowledge I'm probably saying incorrectly. Uh, it's set in the deep forest of Japan here called the Forest of Resurrection, not the Suicide Forest, as people are more familiar with but it's like the opposite it's like the direct opposite of the suicide forest you go there to come alive this is being re-released by arrow with not just the original version of it or you know i'll get to that not entirely original but uh also with the new ultimate versus release which is basically just slightly longer than this it comes out to two hours and ten minutes that particular version of it, and the original was like two hours. I ended up just watching the ultimate version because I had never, in fact, seen it. It had been re-released before, I believe, a Tartan Films. I can't remember. That sounds right. But it was originally ex intended as a sequel to a film called Down to Hell that I've never seen by the same director, but late later ended up being redeveloped as a standalone film. Uh, it follows prisoner KSC2303, who is brought out with another prisoner by a group of Yakuza after they've gotten out of been escaped from jail. And he's like, the main guy is like, uh, yeah, I'm not putting up with any y'all's bullshit. I'm not even sure why we're standing here in the middle of this forest. Well, it turns out there's some shit going on that will slowly be revealed after an entire series of really bloody battles between a seemingly never ending, uh, horde of Yakuza and Yakuza adjacent people. And then them discovering that no one in fact really dies in this forest. They turn into zombies and sort of, uh, what was the John Carpenter, uh, not John Carpenter, George Romero zombie film where they learn to shoot guns? Oh, Day of the Dead. Was that Day of the Dead? Well, that one, sort of. Bub kind of sort of figured out. But the one where it's like big part of the plot. That was oh, the next it one, made right? one I didn't see. Like Land of the Dead or something like that? Oh. Uh, the one that was the attempt by Hollywood to inject some money into it and make a bigger land, budget one? I've only seen Land all the way through once, so. Anyway, it's kind of like that. These zombies are walking around. They kind of, they got weapons and they kind of know how to use them. And maybe there's a real definite way to kill them. Maybe there's not. Everybody's got their own sort of super ability. And it all ties into something that ends up feeling a little Highlander-ish. It also reminded me at times of um, Bad Taste, Peter Jackson's Bad Taste. And that mm -hmm. it feels very much like something that someone was making on the weekend with groups of friends. Yes. Uh, although this was like a really big deal when it came out, like it it was, it was a different time in the film blogging uh, community where a, a site like Ain't It Cool could be like a tastemaker in regards to if it's something that Ain't It Cool touted on there, it was on their radar, then fans would like go seek it out, find it, that sort of thing. And around this time, two thousand was really you know that was at the height of like all the the film blogs and. Um, I remember this movie being like kind of a, a, it felt like a minor breakthrough cult hit. Like it felt like everyone was watching it. Even I worked at a game store at the time and, you know, just Joe Gamer off the street. It was like a movie that, you know, they were buying on DVD as part of their, as mm -hmm. part of their collection. I've never really liked this that much. I have to admit, I've never really gotten into it. He, you know, there's a lot of like, uh, it's a very kinetic film. There's lots of camera movement and everything's kind of like swirling and moving. And it's, it's, um, you know, I can't speak to the editing. It's edited well, but it also breaks the line. They talk about breaking the line where you are, you're, you disorient 
the audience by how you cut when two people are talking to each other in frame and there's a lot of breaking the line as well so it's even hard for me to like say oh the editing's really good i think some of the action editing is probably good especially for somebody working like you know on their first film uh, and it and it is a film with you know a bunch of buddies out in the woods I don't know. What's your take on this? This I thought this would hit me differently than it did in 2000, because in 2000, I felt like a sourpuss for not loving it as much as everybody else did. And watching it now, I was like, you know what? I can pro- I'll probably give this a, a more fair shake. I actually found it harder to watch even than I did in 2000. It's kind of a... When I watch this, I go, this is a film that at the time was groundbreaking because although certainly there are lots of Japanese films with gunplay and swords and what have you, nobody had really made this kind of film there that was like really gory, intense, nonstop action, very Sam Raimi type of shooting, uh, samurais versus like our guys with samurai swords versus zombies, you know, that sort of thing. And this really is kind of nonstop action Mm -hmm. for the two hours plus running time, which maybe will be your type of thing. (laughs) Maybe it's not. I'll say, I do think the action is all extremely well shot. Like specifically for Japanese films, this definitely had turned its eye to what was going on in China for several years and went, Oh, so more violent, more kinetic, less arty (laughs) even though when this film wants to be arty and it's not just ripping from sam raimi what it's doing is fashion shots is what i declared it there's lots and lots and lots of fashion shots of good-looking japanese dudes with leather trench coats pausing for a minute and posing in a cool way for the camera as the camera lovingly swirls around them i mean there's like lots of that so no question anime was also a big influence here it's very live action anime even down to the when it, people talk to each other, all they talk to each other in is like exposition. Like yes. here's a lore dump. Like I'm just gonna we're gonna have a conversation, but it's not really a conversation. It's just it's just lore. Like chunks, uh, big old chunks of lore. The plot is absurd. It's definitely reminiscent of other things, but I think this would have been a a film I would have genuinely still hold up as like, wow, this is classic if it was ninety minutes long. Mm-hmm. Because there's so much wow, we already did this moments in here it's like yes yeah. yes the action's cool but that's all that's all this is is just non-stop well shot action just with very low stakes nobody's really likable and the one thing i'll say that really still stood out where i was like okay that was cool is the way they chose to end it with its epilogue which was like okay that's funny it's kind of a fuck you to the audience but it's pretty fucking funny and no you definitely don't expect it <laughs> it makes sense in the end you're like oh yeah i guess that i guess we probably should have seen that coming uh i think i don't think this is held up fantastically well because of all the imitators that have done what it does much better yeah than it does and less with their own unique style. I mean, there's certainly several films I can think of by Takashi Miike that are considerably better than Versus that are taking a lot from this sort of thing. But this new release, one of the interesting things about it and very controversial to fans is that there was a style in the original where there was very rather extreme color filters that were added to various different scenes. And that has been excised completely from both these versions. So fans, of course, lost their goddamn minds. And the thing is, that was a directive from the director who was like, that was always a mistake. I hated it right after we did it, but we were cramped for time. It was one of those like, uh, I wish I had had more time to put this together. But right now, this will suit my purposes. Always with the intent that 
I'd like to at some point go back and fix this. Well, he did, in fact, come back and fix it, got rid of the filters. And now, of course, people are upset because it's not the exact same thing. Honest, I didn't I don't even didn't even remember that. It wasn't until I was looking at a Blu-ray point by point review of this. I went, oh, yeah, I guess that was a thing there before. And it certainly didn't bother me. I didn't notice anything was missing. Yeah. I think in my head, I it's kind of funny you bring that up because just vaguely thought, I thought this was more stylish and mm. in the way that it looked. And so to hear this now is like, oh, maybe that's what was in my memory. I didn't necessarily watch this and notice that, but I did think, I did think like, I thought this had more visual flair to it than what I'm watching right now. Uh, and the one, the original version of this, if you want to see it, it's still available from, I said Tartan, it's Tokyo Shock okay. had put out a Blu-ray of this years ago, which shows the original, it, even though this is a much better fix up, it's still a cheap looking film. Like, I'm not entirely sure what the, what they used to film this with, but uh, it's, it doesn't look great. <laughs> you know, it looks like really cheap film stock. And so you you always get the impression you're watching a super indie low budget film, which I sup- suppose it is, but which is almost kind of anachronistic with the degree of gore and action that's going on in it, which you don't expect from films that look this way. But there's a lot of bonus features. This is definitely sort of the ultimate collection of stuff, as Arrow is known to do. Their box comes with an insert booklet with essays about the film. Uh, and of course, cast crew information data. It's two discs, one with the original, one with the ultimate cut, and both have bonus features on it, including multiple audio commentaries, a career overview of the director, uh, first contact versus evolution, which is an archival piece looking at how it all got started. There's uh, Tak Sagaguchi's One Man's Journey, another archival piece looking at the lead actor's visit to the Japan Film Festival in Hamburg. Uh, Team Versus, a, a brief tour of the film office, Napalm Films, Deep in the Woods, an archival French featurette with interviews with the cast and crew, The Encounter, another archival French featurette interview with the editor. There's 21 and a half minutes of deleted scenes. Uh, there is a very redacted version of the film that's 20 minutes long called FF version. I'm not even entirely sure what that is. There's more archival stuff, footage from festivals. Uh, there's two... Uh, tie-in movies that follow sort of the two cops and what else was going on with them before and after the events of this movie that, that are weird and unnecessary, but kind of amusing, I guess. And then there's a small making of featurette, uh, all the trailers, all the image galleries. Yeah, the, there's a lot here. So for people who like already like, yes, I love versus fuck you guys. How dare you complain about it? And anyway, this is the one that you want. I suppose we're going to move on to another Asian film, but this one from Korea, and that is Joint Security Area, sometimes known better as JSA. This is directed by the legendary Park Chan-wook, who made films like the Vengeance Trilogy, Sympathy and Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy and Lady Vengeance, and Thirst and The Handmaiden and Stoker, just a, a really tremendously talented Korean film director. And in many ways, this is kind of marking the beginning of his career as a true independent, somebody not just working for hire inside the system. It, you know, one of the weirdest things I found out about this film that follows soldiers on either side of the DMZ line between South and North Korea having a weird friendship, but in the wake of, you know, seeing after the fact flashbacks to it, that there was a, a there was a bunch of killing that happened and they killed each other. So why? It's not as Rashomon as you think. But one of the most interesting things about it is this was made into a musical in, in Korea. 
That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, apparently based more on the original book than the movie, which is not at all the exact thing. But yeah, it's it follows these two soldiers here. Uh, Lee Byung-hun, who is one of the guys you've, if you watch a lot of Korean cinema, you've definitely seen him before in films like I Saw the Devil and uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Weird and Master. and uh, Storm Shadow he, in the G.I. Joe movies. Th- there you go. <laughs> I wouldn't have remembered that, but I, that's what you're here for, John, to remind me of things that relate to G.I. Yes. <laughs> and uh, he's like kind of when we first meet him, they're like talking about they've got a Korean investigator coming in who's like, OK, we got to figure out what's going on. This is a complicated situation. Everybody's very upset. It's very political. Uh, but each side has their own contradicting accounts of events of what actually happened in the film. Like I said, it's not really doing the Rashomon thing where it's showing totally different versions and, and judging. It's actually just sort of piecemealing out the information of what happened, the backstory, as we get to know how these soldiers on either side actually got to be secret friends, because they most certainly were not allowed to go hang out with each other. But, you know, it's cold. It's lonely. One of them has porn. The other doesn't. So it was only natural. And and so with the, you know, it becomes a procedural, quite frankly, at some point. And I do think it's really interesting. I don't think I was quite as taken with it as I was the first time that I saw this movie, where it was really, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, it's not what I would say is, you know, it's not up there with the Vengeance trilogy, but it is a really solid piece of filmmaking and certainly an amazing sort of early shot across the bow from Park Chan-wook. Yeah, this movie was heavily recommended to me back in the day. Austin used to have a video store uh, that's not around. Austin doesn't have any video stores now, but I don't know if you ever hung out or ever went to Padazzo Chunk back in the day. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, this was always recommended to me every time I went in there. And so that, I think I have Padazzo Chunk's copy of it, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, uh, this is my first time to actually sit down and watch this. Um, I did. I avoided it because it sounded on the surface really boring. Like, oh, it's about people that work at the uh, demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. That was maybe underselling like what the movie was actually about, which is it is kind of um, a mystery where you are trying to figure out. Like, there's. I mean, it opens up and in there's people that have been killed, and you know it's working backwards trying to figure out like. As the, as the Swiss come in, because they're neutral, uh, and interviewing the subjects and trying to figure out what actually happened, because everybody's story has some piece of a lie to it, so they're they're kind of working backwards from there. It was really engrossing. Um, yeah, I really, I got into it. I, I, I liked it a lot. Yeah, tremendously good performances. Tremendously well filmed. I, I, I think it, it feels a little dry now, but... I still really did enjoy it. I'm glad I got the chance to see it again. I'm glad we've got from Arrow this brand new, super fixed up copy of this film, which, you know, considering, if nothing else, considering the rest of the films this director made after this makes it a sort of, yeah, why wouldn't you want to see this movie? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's audio commentary here. There's isolated music and effects track. There's stepping over boundaries, which is an appreciation by critic Jasper Sharp, which over looks all Park Chan-wook's filmography in general, but also more specifically with this. There's a bunch of archival special features, music videos, <laughs> and promotional materials here. And then, of course, the regular Arrow uh, insert booklet with essays and what have you. But yeah, I think JSA is a, is a solid little release 
that uh, is anybody who's interested in Korean film should check out for sure. Now we're going to start getting into the stuff that is a little less certain about people necessarily checking out, and that's with the 2020 supernatural horror, horror thriller directed by Mark Tonderai, who uh, did this movie Spell. And I would like to say, in defense of this movie, hey, great production design. That's all I got. <laughs> I mean, did you love the skeleton key? Were you like, why aren't there more movies like Skel- the skeleton key? Well, here you go. I think that this is, you know, I'm fine with, um, this is basically a, uh, like a black cast version of any of the, like, I've been, I've been kidnapped by hillbillies, uh, horror films. And yeah. usually white people dominate those. I've been kidnapped by a hillbillies horror films. So to see an all black version of that, very specific type of horror movie. I appreciated it on that very surface level of like, Oh, that's, that's neat because I haven't seen it. I haven't seen this story before with an all black cast that said, yeah, I've seen this story before. I've seen this story so many times. Um, really the only, the only wrinkle to it is the fact that it does have an all black cast and that's it. it, It's one little thing that's like, okay, that's kind of cool. But the movie's just every single movie you've ever seen about anybody that's that ends up stranded in the backwoods and, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I will say there's another thing that makes it different there, but it's also reminiscent of many other films, which is that voodoo plays a part in yeah. it. And the idea that magic is real and the said kidnappers of this family man, uh, played by Omari Hardwick, a uh, who owns his own plane. He's basically flown for uh, a funeral back to his hometown, which is in New Orleans or sorry, Louisiana somewhere like the plane crashes. He doesn't know where his family is. When he gets up, he's in a strange place. His body is broken. He can't walk his, his leg, his feet are all fucked up and, and bandage and finds that this trio of people, Earl, Eloise and Lewis are not going to let him go. They pulled him the plane. They say, Hey, nobody else was in there. I don't know what you're talking about. And it becomes clear very quickly that he is being held prisoner against his will. And then how do you figure out what it is? Well, why are they keeping him here? And Eloise is a, you know, she's a voodoo. She is a, she's a voodoo master, if you will. And that will play in in ways, most of the ways you expect. Although there is one shot in here with, uh, considering what's wrong with his feet specifically that even had me going, ah, ah, turning away from the TV going, ah, it's too much. It's too much. Uh, I mean, this is a really well shot film that is so derivative of other things that I and has such a silly ending that I ended up finding it kind of disposable. Yeah, that's a good word for it, because it's not it's not bad. It's not poorly made. It's not poorly acted. It's just, you know, it's it's so hard to talk about these movies sometimes that are just like they just get the job done on a like a minimum level and then that's it. And that's, that's what spell is like it executes on its premise, but it doesn't do it with any particular great deal of interest or grace. And then it ends and it's like, okay. And you move on to the next movie. Yeah. Totally, totally forgettable other than the hook of it having an all black cast. 
Um, it's the definition of a red box horror film. It's the equivalent of a Liam Neeson red box action film. Yeah. You're like, it's fine. It's all fine. You've seen it a hundred yes. times before or stuff just like it, but it is, you know, very professionally done. And if you're not looking for anything to be challenging at all, you just want to, you know, horror movie with a bit of creeps and, you know, also supporting out all African American cinema, no question. Then here you go. But I don't think there's anything that really makes this stand out. There is 26 minutes of or 27 minutes of deleted scenes, wow. quite a bit. I know, <laughs> right? <laughs> it makes you wonder. Uh, there's a, a there are a couple different EPK type things, making of things here, and then even a look at voodoo, which they call hoodoo. Hoodoo, you do do what? Remind me of this movie? No. <laughs> You'll have to remind me of this movie a year from now because I will have forgotten it. Hey oh. Totally forgotten it. Well, let's move into something I thought was considerably less forgettable. If not, I think, and this is controversial, a mixed bag. Mm. When Lovecraft Country is really good, it's great. And when it's not, it's just kind of something you laugh at and go, what were you thinking? <laughs> I mean, Lovecraft Country was a big deal coming on HBO. Jordan Peele being one of the executive producers, anytime he's associated or attached to horror on any level, people go, huh? You know, for obvious reasons. Uh, with a great cast, including several that because of this have their careers have exploded with lots of stuff they're signed up for now, like big stuff. One of the main actors in here, uh, Jonathan Majors is now, looks like he's going to be one of the big major big bads, maybe the big bad of the next phase of Marvel films, which is pretty cool. Also with Courtney B. Vance, uh, Journey Smollett. She's just, man, she, her career from someone who was a television actress, her career is now officially exploding out. Uh, Anjano Ellis, Unmi Musaku, Abby Lee, Jamie Chung, who is, uh, you know, you're like, what is she doing in this? There's a side story that eventually ties back in about Korea that it, with her that is one of the wackiest and most rewarding things I thought in this whole thing. But this is trying to take the works of Lovecraft, which the man was deeply racist, no question about it. But he also wrote some stuff that no question, absolutely, he, he changed horror as much as and maybe even invented it as much as Tolkien invented slash changed fantasy. I mean, he's one of the biggest influences ever. And this is kind of like black people taking it back going, no, we like Lovecraft stuff too. We just want to do something that would make him spin in his grave and make it all about <laughs> like racial injustice. And I like that, but this is the thing that plays out sometimes like an anthology, I'm like, what does this have to do with anything? I don't know, John. What did you think? I mean, like, in particular, there's a whole sequence that has, that felt like a national treasure, mm -hmm. but with horror stuff. And I was like, this is dumb. <laughs> I, so in, a, in broad strokes, real quick, I have the same problems with the show as I do the book, which is, I, which is a title thing. It's not very Lovecraftian. Um, the, 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 TV show is actually slightly more because they do include some things from Lovecraft mythos in it, but the book is not really. The only thing that kind of overlap is Lovecraft wrote for pulp and the book and the show is sort of pulpy. So mm -hmm. Lovecraft country to me becomes like almost like what's oh, in the neighborhood. Like it's in Lovecraft country, like adjacent. <laughs> yeah, it's adjacent <laughs> to Lovecraft, which, you know, it, yeah, it's my problem with this show is a macro problem, not a micro problem. On the micro, episode to episode, I found each individual um, 
mini dilemma that was happening every episode, pretty compelling and rich with horror imagery and effects work that sometimes was mind-bogglingly good. You know, when it wants to be creepy, it can be creepy or gross or whatever. And, and seeing racial injustice itself treated as a horror element is really, really strong in the series. The kind of threaded, serialized B-plot that runs through everything about the family rarely made sense. And when episodes would focus on it, I often didn't know what anyone's motivation was, what they were doing, why they were doing it, what was causing them to behave certain ways with certain characters and not other characters. All of that stuff feels really uh, disorienting and and did not necessarily... You know, HBO is known for these great serialized shows like Game of Thrones and Westworld and stuff where those threads really, really weave and tighten the show as an entire experience. I don't, I, I don't know that I felt like Lovecraft was constructed with the strength of those shows as far as the yeah. serialized. Yeah, no, I, you know, I kept thinking right off the bat, like by the second episode, I'm like, huh? And then by the end, I was like, yeah, why was this plot, the overarching plot, not like four seasons of television? Because the basic premise allows for so much more exploration of the, the the set horror idea, you know, all these little horror things going on around the country. It would have been a slow building, slow reveal to where we finally get. And I think that would have ended up being rewarding with a lot more information, a lot more character development. But as it is, there's a lot of characters. Everybody gets their chance to explore. I mean, everybody's got their own B-plot that, generally speaking, is pretty interesting. Uh, some more than others is one where one of the characters is, through magic, able to become a white woman, and the sequence of trance of them changing back and forth is incredibly grotesque and one of the best special effects I've seen in I don't even know how long. So good. But if this had a chance to play out with the idea of these people on the road writing entries for the green book of safe places to stay and regularly encountering different Lovecraft adjacent things and mini stories, yeah, that would have been so much better than this four seasons worth of overarching plot content crammed into a single season. I thought the first episode, I was shocked at the first episode because having read the book, I assumed that it was going to be mm-hmm. a season per section, that the entire first season was going to be about him discovering his connection to this weird cult out in the middle of nowhere and them looking for the father and trying to find the father. And that that was going to literally, I, I assumed from trailers and things that that was going to carry through. Yeah. And it's the first episode. And then it was like, whoa, are they going to hit each of these in a, on a per episode basis? And then they, they basically did. I mean, there's other stuff in there as well, but it was a, I, I don't know. I was, I was going to say it's not the best way to tell the story, but I know the show has like, had, you know, it was destination viewing and it was destination viewing for me too, but there was rarely a critical word about the construction of the, of the serialized plot. And yeah, I felt no, like that was I, I think we're exactly on the same page. I think there's more than enough great stuff in this show to make it entirely worth watching. If you're interested in things that take racial issues or real political issues, social political issues, and filter them through genre, I think 
that stuff is incredibly well done most of the time here. And if you're interested in horror, I think there's just some tremendous horror here. But I think that, as as you said, look, seeing the forest for the trees, it's doesn't entirely fit together as well as it should and has some goddamn goofy as shit stuff about it that doesn't work at all. But yeah, still totally worth watching, I think. Um, they have put this out on Blu-ray now, so you can, if you don't have HBO, you can pick it up. And there are some bonus features here. Uh, you know, look at a lot of the more Lovecraftian type stuff in here. Look at the production side, which, like I said, was tremendously well done with care. Interviews with all the performers, or little short EPK things, as well as with some of the crew members. Uh, looking at a lot of the meta aspects in here, because the, the series itself is kind of a meta take on the book. Like, the book... Lovecraft Country exists within the story of the show in a really interesting way. But yeah, I think this is well worth your time. Meanwhile, talking about television, we have a couple more TV shows to talk about that John did not get a chance to see, but Aaron had already seen both of them. So we're going to break away here for a minute and we're going to talk to Aaron about two of these TV shows, which now are available on Blu-ray. Big thanks to Papa Bear, Aaron Whittle, for coming in and helping me out a little bit on this week's show. You know how I do. I want to come in and help when I can. And you do, brother. You do. And you help with, because we had two titles that were two complete TV seasons that poor John, I was like, he already had this huge stack. And I was like, I'm not going to give him two complete TV seasons <laughs> to watch in the middle of all that. But you had already reviewed both of these shows with me on the site proper on Screener Squads. I was like, well, I know someone who already yep. does the show who did see these and I don't have to force to watch again. So we're just going to talk about real quick. What yeah, out now on Blu-ray is Snowpiercer season one. Wait, you're like, wait, season one, Snowpiercer. Isn't that a movie? Yes, it is a movie, but now it's a television show on TNT. And I realized that that thought a TNT version of Snowpiercer. I mean, that was my reaction too. To be, it's a fair immediate reaction like, right everybody's immediate reaction is why does that need to exist which is a fair point because totally fair question it, it really doesn't need to exist but nevertheless it does and it's you know it's it's better than it has really any right to be it's, it's not as good as it could be it's there, not there, as good as the movie but, but but it's still pretty damn good <laughs> and i like that it's not just uh well we're just gonna do the same thing as the movie yeah it's like premise and like is the same but other than that it kind of goes its own way completely you're like oh well this isn't the story in the movie (laughs) you know it's like the setting is the same and the roiling political elements and the metaphor are the same but the actual things that are happening and the plot is something totally different and when i was like oh well this has got jennifer connelly and uh or not Connolly. What is yeah, it? You got it right. It's is Jennifer it Connolly. Connolly? Yes. Okay. Jennifer Connolly and David Diggs in the lead. I'm like, well, damn. I'm gonna have to watch this fucking thing now, aren't I? And uh, you know, like I said, as much as I thought some of the TNT their commitment to special effects is not what it could be. I'll well, give them that. You know, this is TNT's first entry into the prestige genre. Uh and so like they're trying. They're really trying. And even though the digital effects really, yeah, okay, okay, they don't hold up. Um, 
the sets are interesting. The actors all put in a good performances. Uh, there's inventive camera work. They utilize the, the, that, that single train car limitation that they have very well and mm. dress it up in a bunch of different ways. Even though, you know, they have like six different boxes and they just like tear down the walls and put up fake ones up. You know, like they have to have like a disposable, um, they're not disposable, but a modular set for this. Sure. Like, yeah, it, Ikea it, is in charge exactly. of art direction. <laughs> but no, like they do a lot right. And it ends up, even though, yes, it, it does go into ways that, or yes, it, it isn't as good as the movie. You're right. You can't get around that. But it does manage to tell a story that is equally relevant and made me think. And, and it's yeah. something that uh, I would probably be interested in tuning in for a second season of even. Oh, definitely. When yeah. it ended, I was like, well, shit, I'm going to watch the second season, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm a Snowpiercer fan. Fuck. Uh, I, I like that. You know, I mean, I, I like the, the procedural murder mystery stuff. And that's kind of one of the elements they add into this is that David Diggs character is, you know, he's in the back of the train. So he's like among the poor people. But it comes out that he used to be a police detective and, you know, a disgraced police detective, of course. And the head of hospitality, the voice of the train, is Jennifer Connelly, who is set up initially as like, you know, like in the movie, oh, that's the villain. But she goes, all right, well, I need somebody who knows how to do this sort of thing because there are murders happening on this train and we don't even know how to start detecting, you know, <laughs> a serial killer. So they, you know, kind of bring him in and he's going, you know, I'll help you, but I'm looking around and taking notes of what's going on here in the front of the train areas because uh, I kind of think we've got to burn all this shit down. Well, and, and she is a much more interesting character as she's not just a villain. She's actually got a lot of depth and like there's interesting secrets are revealed about her. And my God, the way it ends, the second season is like going to be really interesting if there is one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm with you completely. And... You know, I mean, it's out on Blu-ray now, so you can pick it up that way. Uh, if you don't have TNT, like I said, a lot of people cut the cable cord and like, where would I even watch TNT? <laughs> um, there's bonus features here as well to make it worthwhile. There's an overview, which looks at the concept of the series. I mean, there's a lot of EPK stuff here. There's one called overview, one called class warfare that looks into the metaphor, the class divide element. There's Jennifer and David behind the scenes interview. Uh, self-evident what that is there's the train that looks at the special effects which, and some of the the crazier locations on the train and behind the curtain art of the frozen world looking into the art design and what have you but yeah i definitely thoroughly give this recommendation it's um it's unfortunate it's a little longer than it probably than i like a show to be at 10 episodes at this point i'm yeah, kind of like you could lose one or two episodes easy yeah yeah easily but you know, hey, what the hell? And I'm looking now. It looks like, yes, there definitely, in fact, not only is a second season, but it's already airing. So uh, there oh, you go. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I will say uh, one thing that I'm really happy about is that because they are doing the longer form, uh, the social commentary has a chance to be a little more nuanced and have a little bit more breathing room. Because, like, uh, I like the movie. I, I, I like a lot of what it has to say, but it also... Uh, it's about as subtle as a sledgehammer to the face. And so it is Very nice true. to see them like slowly build up the wrinkles and the rhythms of the social commentary before they, you know, go full whole hog with the, the chaos. 
Well, the next show we're talking about is another show that, once again, we reviewed. So if you want to hear longer versions of these reviews here about the original release of them as they aired, you can check out in Screener Squad. You can go to at the top of the page on one of us. There's a thing that's like films and TV. Click on that as an alphabetical list of everything we've ever reviewed. So you can find shit real easy that way. Uh, but we're talking about Doom Patrol, the complete second season. Obviously, we were big fans of the first season. We ended up being big fans of the second season. This is now coming out on Blu-ray. It is, I think, keeping up the quality of the first one. It, this is a, it, it's basically, I saw someone describe it of, if the X-Men are Oreo, this is Hydrox, you know, but <laughs> I don't, but I don't agree with that See, at all. Uh, the way I've always, or the way I've been thinking about this, and this is especially the second season, because the first, it had a very definite arc. It was like a single narrative that they were really hitting hard at. They lost their professor and they had to find him. And the second season, it leans into the idea that this is therapy for superheroed individual or superpowered individuals. Mm-hmm. It's not a superhero show. These are not heroes. These are flawed, tragic individuals trying just to survive and be happy. And it's like, it's about their therapy. And I adore that. It doubles down on that, too. This is in some ways a lot darker than the first season, I thought, uh, and depressing. And part of that is because the new member, Dorothy, played by Abigail Shapiro, the ape-faced daughter of Chief Niles, Timothy Dalton's character, her story is fucking dark. (laughs) And there's a lot of other – there's stuff here that's just plain fun, like the sex patrol. (laughs) I don't want to – if you haven't seen it, just like seriously, oh that's god. all you need to know. Oh it's my like, god, it's it's one of the best single episodes of scripted television I saw that year. It's really, really <laughs> it's good. Amazing. But yeah, this is more fun. It's more insanity. It's like it's the X Men if they had written it on tons of LSD. And it's weirdly, although not in the chronology sense of how things happen, but it's real weirdly loyal to Grant Morrison's run on the comic book, which is not what I expected because that's one of the most batshit insane comic books ever written. I'm like, well, there's no way they're going to do it like Grant did, but yeah, this was filled with like drugs and fetishism and all sorts of just craziness. (laughs) The one thing I will say is, is a couple of the characters, namely the robot. I'm at a point where I really want them to evolve beyond their initial shtick. Like, yes. I'm really hoping he, when we get into season three, the characters will have grown a little bit more because it, it, it's something that it hasn't become a problem yet, but it, it's damn sure about to be. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I found towards the end of the second season, I'm like, okay, y'all going to have to find some other element to bring into this, some big changes, because there's some stuff that you've already kind of, you're dragging out a bit too long in character-based qualities, and I'm kind of ready for it. Yeah, This needs something really fresh and new, and Dorothy alone being added to the show was not it. So, <laughs> I mean, as weird and crazy as the show is, like, you started out making us care about these bizarre characters, and you don't seem to know how to where to take them next so like hopefully that's the plan and and i'm kind of intrigued too to see how the next season begins because this is one of the shows that was most directly impacted by covid because like there was another episode that we were supposed to get that they just kind of went it works better this way i didn't think it did (laughs) i agree uh i'm intrigued to see how they do the lead in i still think that they need to do like a doom patrol holiday special but yes I, i think we're a little late for that but if you want to pick this up on Blu-ray, it is available now. Uh, comes in a slip box. There is a uh, episode list insert in here that comes in here, but no digital copy code, which is weird because these sort of things almost always come with that. So I was like, "That's why wouldn't they include that this I'm time?" I'm surprised around? they didn't just include a postcard that said like "Buy HBO Max, fuckers." 
Yeah, fuck you. Get HBO Max. Uh, there's Doom Patrol, the, the magic of makeup for about nine minutes, which is just a look at some of their practical work there, which is actually really, really, really impressive. Good. And then Come Visit Georgia PSA, which is this thing that appears on a lot of stuff. It's just like, yeah, okay. Um, it's food. Shooting in Georgia is great. And we were legally contracted to include this. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, well. Well, thank you for helping me out with these TV shows, Aaron. I'll let you get back about your business, which no one can know what it is because it is mysterious and deadly. Uh, you know what? I, I had something that I was ready to like pull out, and then you went in a completely different direction with it. <laughs> so All I was right, like, let's go back. Shit. <laughs> let's go back. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Aaron, for coming and helping me out. I thought you said you had something. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I, I was just going with it. I was being funny. Uh, no, uh, no, you're you welcome. It was a pleasure. It's always good to be on. You're welcome, Chris. Well, you're on the next show, too, so start watching. You can't escape me, guys. Well, thank you, Aaron, for helping me out with those two. I was a little, when I got them, it was a little late to pass them on to John and say, John, do you mind, like, uh, watching real quick these entire two seasons of television? <laughs> I I know you appreciate it. Especially last night when I just, like, died. Like, got off work and couldn't keep my eyes open. Uh, for the record, both those we just talked about, Snowpiercer, which, believe it or not, the television version of, is pretty darn good. Uh, nobody was more shocked than me. But, hey, David Diggs, what are you going to do? And Jennifer Connelly. I mean, great casting. And then Doom Patrol Season 2, I'm sure should come to no, as no surprise to you, is, in fact, quite good. But uh, let's move on and talk about more movies. What do we got? We got Toys of Terror. Okay. I know. I know, people. I know what it sounds like. It sounds like one of those endless, trashy horror titles that, like, you see it, like, used at a pawn shop. And, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, pretty much. So, <laughs> I made John watch this because they said it to me, even though I didn't ask for it. And I was like... Fuck it. I like Christmas horror movies. Sometimes a, a, something can sneak in here. And I'll tell you this, John. If this movie had committed to being comedy horror, I might have given it like a, yeah, yeah, okay, it's okay. But this movie keeps thinking it's going to be a scary movie. <laughs> and it's so absurdly not scary at all. It's so ridiculous that, like, I can only recommend this as a movie to laugh at. Uh, it's hard to believe this ever got made, quite frankly, but it is what it is. I mean, it's the story of this family who are moving into this house that used to be a children's hospital. Uh, they plan to renovate it. The parents, Kiana, Teresa, and Deo Aid, and they have their own children there and their own nanny, played by Georgia Walters. And they find in the attic a trunk of old toys, which we see briefly in a little blurb in, in the earliest part, in the beginning of the film. So, of course, the toys, I mean, they're they're bad. They're, they're bad toys. And they come with the curse. Monosodium glutamate. No, that's The Simpsons. Sorry. Uh, and the one thing I'll give this movie is it doesn't wait. For so long before the parents are like, oh, shit, the toys are, in fact, animated and evil. And it ends up a fight. How do we beat the toys? But the ending I do, isn't very satisfying. It's kind of goofy. Uh, I don't know, man. This was just and, and the animation of the toys is stop motion, but looks terrible. It's so good. <laughs> this might be a John Golson type of movie. I don't know. Is that what this is? I thought this was going to be. 
I thought this was going to be unwatchable. And what it struck me as, it struck me as a bad movie made by smart people while I was watching it. Now, I didn't pay close enough attention to the credits to see that Dana Gold, uh, the comedian, Dana Gold, wrote the film. Oh, and that's uh, surprising because there's not a lot of overt jokes in this. Uh, and then it's directed by Nick Verso, who is um, had been building a pretty big name for himself in queer horror cinema. Hmm. Um, and so after the fact, I went, oh, I'm glad to have proven my my instinct right, which was I bet this is made by talented people. Like it's a trash product. It's a Warner Brothers release on some weird label where I guess they're just churning out like horror, like cheap horror junk to sell at Walmart in the $5 bin kind of thing. But it felt like there was, we've watched enough of these, you know, when there's no effort versus like a little bit of effort guys. And this felt like a film where there was a little bit of effort. There was just enough to make me go like, all right, I dig what you're doing. Like, it's not good. It's, it is a, it is a killer toy movie, (laughs) but it felt like they were, it felt like they were amusing themselves at times as well. Like all of the toy stuff is not cool looking, but it's intentionally like chintzy looking. Like it all looks like stop motion, but it's a very deliberate stop motion decision where it looks like stop motion cartoons. Like it doesn't just look like stop motion, like, Oh, uh, the gate where they're using stop motion to make the move. Like it literally looks like it's aiming for like a Rankin and Bass style of like herky jerky, like, uh, <laughs> movement on these toys. I mean, they and they go with this thing with it where, and Rankin Bass is what I thought too, even to the point where they sing, they have like songs that they sing and stuff. And you're like, I don't understand what this movie is trying to accomplish. That stuff doesn't really work, but it's kind of, you stare at it quizzically. Like, well, you put the effort in, but I think it was a wrong, I, I think you were misdirected. I don't think you, you understood why, how this could have fit in and worked. I think if the rest of the film had been funny, and trying to be funny, this could have been quite a kind of charming, but as it is, it's just a trash evil toys film. Yeah. I, I, you know, if we gave letter grades to this, I would probably give this a big old like C minus, maybe a C plus. It's a, it's, it's not, I don't want to oversell it, but I was a little bit charmed by it. I got to be honest. Okay. And I, I trust me that cover. I expected to, I expected this to be one of those where it's like, please put me out of my misery like 30 minutes in. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, this still kind of has me. So I, I, it gets a pass. I don't love it. I wouldn't even necessarily recommend it. But, oh God, you could do a lot worse. There's even a couple extras here, believe it or not. There's a, a feature where they basically explain why they chose stop motion instead of CGI. And it's because they thought it looked cooler. Quite that simply. That's why. And there's a sort of EPK look at the stunts and the effects work in the movie. So it's not a lot, but it's there. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know who you are if this is your type of thing. Maybe, I mean, I could see having fun with this with some people, like as a Christmas movie, if you're having a Christmas horror movie marathon, throw this into the middle when everyone's good and drunk, but not so drunk they're getting tired. This could be a fun one to throw into the mix. And it's, you know, it's R-rated. I feel like if it had just a couple punches of cartoonish gore, would have really like helped this movie. It's, so it's pretty, pretty relatively tame. 
So we're going to move to a horror film, horror, horror sci-fi film that's by two of the up-and-comers who are now being hailed as two of the best people working in sci-fi and horror right now, director, writers, producers, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. I'd normally say actors as well because they've acted in several of their own films, but they don't actually act in this one synchronic, which was their first really well-financed very not the first film that I think doesn't look like an indie art film, you know, all the rest of their films, which I've loved all of them, resolution spring, and especially the endless just love to pieces. All three of those movies, they all have a veneer of a sort of cheaper film stock, a, a, a definitely not as pricey look. This looks like a very professional production of a movie. Uh, it premiered in 2019 at TIFF, I saw it at Fantastic Fest, and I'm glad I rewatched this because this is actually a different cut than what played those festivals. There's a different ending, and there's different bits here and there, some stuff substituted out for others. I actually much prefer, although the minorly different ending, in a way that goes from definitive to ambiguous. The ambiguous way was definitely the way to go here, in my opinion. But Synchronic follows Jamie Dornan and Anthony Mackie. They're paramedics who work the late shift. Uh, Steve, Anthony Mackie, is kind of a player, right? He likes the ladies. But Dennis, Jamie, he's married. He's got two kids of his own. But they've been close, apparently, for years and years. They're best friends, right? Their families like each other. And they start encountering on their paramedic shifts people who are either dead or in really bizarre states where it leads to some designer drug that's on the street called Synchronic. Meanwhile, Steve discovers, uh, Anthony Mackie, that he has a brain tumor and he's not going to live very long. And he says, you know what? I'm so tired of seeing people die this way. I'm going to do something about this. And that something means trying to figure out exactly what's going on with this drug, which is much more than just a drug. Uh, and not just that, but his Jamie Dornan's daughter has disappeared under the influence of it. And he thinks this might be the only way to get her again, which you end up is a kind of twisty, but not abstract. I'd say sci mainly science fiction film with some elements of horror that I really found fascinating. Uh Oh, I'm glad you did. <laughs> um, here we yeah, go. I don't know. This was, this never grabbed me. Just, this didn't work for me. Um, I don't know that I have much to add to that. I mean, I wish that I did because it would be easy for me to sit here and go, it's not really like it needed more character driven. Well, it's definitely like it has a focus on the characters. It's just something about it never quite clicked into place for me. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I actually got, I, I got less interested kind of as it went along. A lot of it is kind of devoted to this, to this mystery that I think is not really a mystery. And I, I think that may be my biggest problem with it is sort of, it establishes pretty early on that there's a drug that lets you trip through time. And I mean, literally the first scene. And so a lot of the film is devoted to like, what is this drug? What is this drug? And then, and then after they find the drug, well, what does this drug do? And I'm like, well, all that was done in the, in the post, in the like pre-credit sequence, like basically the very first thing in the film shows you the drug and shows you what it does. I almost feel like if, not to armchair edit the movie, I almost feel like if that didn't exist and then we were in Anthony Mackie's place and we were also learning, wait, what is this drug? Wait, what does it do? Would have been more interesting to watch him do all that detective work. Hmm. Um, it just didn't, it never clicked into place for me. Um, I found it okay. Like it's, it's a slick movie. Um, 
it just it just never grabbed me and i wanted it to i i actually you know we reviewed endless on the show and i was also really middle of the road about endless um though i like spring a lot uh you know it's kind of middle of the road on endless as well yeah i don't i don't i, I wish that I was more positive on this because it sounds really, really cool. And I was kind of hyped to see it, but it just, you have those movies, just something about them just doesn't quite like lock in, you know, it doesn't like, it kind of leaves you and you're watching it, but you're watching it as an observer. You're not watching it as an invested, like, oh, I, I need to find out what happens. You're mm-hmm. watching it because it's on the screen you're looking at. <laughs> uh, we I finally know, found man. the dividing point between me and John here because I, I love everything these guys did. And I didn't actually love this the first time I saw it. But mm-hmm. the second time I saw it, I really did. It really clicked with me. What, do you, what was the difference in the cut? I can't say without it being a spoiler. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but um, it wasn't tonally different or anything like that. It was just not terribly so. There's very, very slight differences, and I think the main difference is that the ending is cut a few seconds early to make it ambiguous instead of definitive, mm-hmm. uh, which it wasn't definitive in the original cut. But speaking of that, there actually is a funny little thing they've always done with their movies. The it listed as an alternate ending with Benson and Moorhead, where they have to come in and explain this is not actually an alternate ending. We always get our crew to film sort of a joke ending, and this is the joke ending. It relates entirely to a question in the movie that makes more sense in the original, uh, makes more sense in this cut than it does in the original theatrical cut, certainly. But, I mean, it's cute, and I love the fact, one thing I've always loved about these guys is, like, whereas a lot of other stuff, the actual directors are only, you know, tertially involved with the bonus features these guys are a hundred percent there for the bonus features and they are with all their other stuff either where it's sitting down with them they filmed it themselves they look image like bit by bit at at the film there's an audio commentary with them and the producer uh making of the a deleted scene i really like that apparently they had shot this whole thing as a pre-visualization with them as the actors playing every role in it. And it shows some of the footage of that, of them playing the roles. I'm like, that's kind of cool. You never see that. That's the thing I've never, I've never seen that in a film where like the directors actually go out and shoot the scenes with them, you know, with no effects or anything just to give the the editor an idea of what they're looking for basically. And I thought that was kind of fascinating, but yeah, I'm sorry. You didn't like Synchronic as much as me. I, I really I'm did. I'm sorry enjoy. too. Uh, you know, I th- I still think they, these guys have good ideas, and I want to. I know they're moving on to Moon Knight next, um, so they'll be kind of locked in because they won't be able. You know, you're dealing with somebody else's set of ideas, and you're figuring out the way to bring those to life. But one of the things right. I appreciate about them is that their all their movies are built around like kind of a, an unusual high concept, mm-hmm. and I like that about their work, even when I don't necessarily, even when their movies don't click. So. They've become filmmakers now at this point where even though I really only, their first film is fine. And even though I really only love Spring, they still make interesting enough movies where I'll, I'll probably always look forward to whatever it is the next one is and hoping that it, it clicks with me. So funny moment here and reveal that years ago when The Endless came out, I was cornering Aaron, the one of the two directors. I mean, we all, everybody hangs out at Fantastic Fest, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a big deal to meet and talk to directors, but it was not even close to the first time I'd, you know, partied with these guys. I felt like I could come up and just shoot the shit with them. And I was like, I had just read Jeff Lemire's Moon Knight. And I was like, Mm -hmm. this 
I can't even think of another directing team that would be better at handling a story like this than these guys, like who would plausibly do it. And I was like, man, I know you don't, you probably don't read a lot of comic books, but man, this one series, you should read it. I mean, nobody's adapted it, but Marvel's now looking to adapt everything. I mean, if you guys had a pitch and you threw it in there and I was like, okay. So years later, you know, this happens, it's announced that they got Moon Knight. And so I sent Aaron a message like, do you remember me doing this? He's like, oh, shit, you totally did, didn't you? I, I had forgotten. But yeah, I remember you cornering me about this. I'm like, well, read that graphic novel already. Nice. <laughs> uh, moving on to something considerably more scholarly. I'm going to need to hear you say this title in French. God damn it. <laughs> All right, so this is the new Criterion release. It's a box set, three films by Louise Bunuel. I think that's right. Louise? Yeah, it said Louise. French director, the sort of, I mean, when you think of surrealist directors, he's the guy you think of. I mean, if you don't know the name offhand and you've studied film on any level, like you ever took a history of film class, you've seen one of his short films, Un Chien Andalou, which he made with famous surrealist artist Salvador Dali. You know, the famous image of the razor cutting across the eyeball of the woman, and ants climbing out of the hand. Very deeply influential. Does that make his films good? Well, certainly critics throughout the ages have thought so, but very strongly awarding them a number of Oscars. This set features the last three films that he made. First, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, which I would definitely say is his 1972 film, is the the one that most people think of as far as a feature film with this particular director that won Best Foreign Language Film and a nomination for Best Original Screenplay. And then the 1974 The Phantom of Liberty, and then 1977's his final film, That Obscure Object of Desire. All three films are acclaimed by critics. You'll often see them on AFI and lists like that of best movies ever made. And man, John, I got to tell you, I don't entirely... I, I, I think surrealism really only works under specific situations. And in Bunuel's situation, it was because it was topical at the time and very culturally specific. I don't think this translates through test of time. So do we want to hit these as... Uh, Go ahead. We'll hit these as a group. Okay. okay. We'll just take this. Since it was a box set, we'll hit, as, we'll hit them as a group. And Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois is about um, a group of upper-class friends who are trying to get together to have dinner and things keep interrupting their dinner. Phantom of Liberty is sort of a sketch comedy movie where it's like you have a series of interconnected sketches like Mr. Show where characters move from one frame to the next, but none of the sketches you keep waiting for like a really good one. Yeah. <laughs> and then that obscure object of desire is um, this, this man boards a train and he tells the story of this uh, really um, exhausting relationship that he had with this young dancer who in the film is played by uh, two different actresses. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're very, they're three, very, there are three movies that on the surface are very different, and in reality, they're all they're, they all have a very similar tone and feel. With Discreet Charm, 
it felt like a it felt like setup for a joke with no punchline. Like everything felt like it was all setting up gags. Yeah. Like um, we're going to do this, and you can see like oh now the army's over at his house, and now this is happening, and this is happening, and you keep going. Okay, where's the payoff? And then, but I guess the point of the movie ultimately is that they withhold the payoff. So like there's it's all set up for jokes with no punchline, which is such a strange way to make a comedy. Yeah. It's no. so weird. There's things you expect to have, like the priest becoming the gardener. There's little things that you expect to have big, big payoffs that <laughs> just don't go anywhere. They don't do anything. It's so strange. Yeah. I, and I, your idea, like you talked about the second one being sketch comedy. Mm-hmm. The first two films here, uh, Discreet Charm and Phantom Liberty, both have that quality. I think Discreet Charm does as well, except that it's more, it's like the last season of Python where it is one story kind of, but it keeps having these uh, bizarre things happen during it. It's, it's about something. (laughs) I had to look it up to figure out what they were getting at. I think there's a lot of what drives me crazy is people who make films like this and been well, was well known for it of going, it's not important what I say it means. Oh, come on. Nobody, we all know, yes, yes, your, your interpretations are important too of art, but what did you think it meant? You didn't just make it. And apparently a lot of the time, that's exactly what he did. He's like, oh, this would be cool. <laughs> this is the idea that just came to me in a dream last night. I don't know what it has to do with anything, but I'm going to do it. And that's what Phantom of Liberty definitely feels like, because it is, it feels like scraps of things that he couldn't turn into whole screenplays. Yeah. Like, oh, I kind of have an idea about these characters and then it's, I mean, that's why sketches are called sketches. And then you get a sketch and then it moves on to the next thing. But they all feel like it was like he's coming to the end of his life. He has notes scrawled around. So he's just going to make those into a movie. That's what that's what Phantom of Liberty feels like. It does. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, at the very least, that obscure object of desire feels, despite the absurdity of the lead female character being played by two totally different, unmistakably different actresses who have very different personalities when they're playing it. Outside of that, it's a somewhat straightforward movie. I mean, it's weird. There's like presumptions that people make about life that just are not things that people feel or do, but it's nowhere near as abstract as the other three. So if you're looking for one of these to be a little more straightforward, that's the one. Um, It's, the only one that provoked an emotional reaction in me as well, because you get so annoyed <laughs> at the woman he's trying to date. She's a monster, right? <laughs> she's the worst. And he's no fucking catch himself, right? He's a he's a jackass a philanderer. But even so, you're like, at the end, you're like, come on, man. What are you, so what are you saying? And the answer is, I don't know. I really don't know. I, I'm glad for people who love this stuff. I mean, maybe when I'm 70, I'll revisit this and go, oh, but right now I'm just kind of clue. A question mark? I liked all three movies. I'd never seen a Bunuel film before other than yeah, Unchin and Alu. Um, but so this was all new to me. And I was actually like, there was a little film geek part that when you, when I got the set, I was like, oh, I finally get to discover like what the big deal is. Yeah, me too. And I was I, I will say all three films, not to sound, I'm going to sound like a freaking troglodyte. All three films kept my interest. I never found them boring. Um, I probably liked Obs- Obscure Object the most because it was the most relatable if you've ever been in a crappy relationship with someone who is emotionally manipulative. Um, it has things that are relatable in it. Um, 
But none of these, like, knocked my socks off in that, like, this is one of the best films I've ever seen kind of way. Which is really what the reputation of these movies is across the board. Is like, these are some of the greatest films ever made. And, you know, it's like, they're fine. (laughs) It's it's such a John thing to say, though, right? Like, you have, like, like, to have me on and just be like, oh, they're okay. Like, isn't that my reputation is like, everything is just like, okay. But I was... I was expecting, I really, I was expecting to at least one of these to, for me to be like, damn, like, I see why that's a Stone Cold classic. And instead I was like, these are like three middle of the road 70s art house films that were all just fine. And, you know, Benoit is Spanish, but these films were all made in, in France. When he's living in France, they're very French. And more and more as I get older, I'm starting to realize, I just don't think I like most French movies. <laughs> I don't know why. I like I like the French. I like so many things in their culture and other forms I of like art. I like French fries. Shush. I like <laughs> cheese, okay? That's what it is. I like cheese. No, but you know what I'm saying. Yes. I just, French films, they confuse me. I don't, there's something culturally there that I just, I don't know if like there's a, a part of me that just is blocked from understanding it. But these films... I don't get Fellini. I'm sorry. I've tried multiple times and I still like, I really don't see what you guys see in these movies. It's just a block for me. I'm like, they're not terrible or anything. They're just, they just don't appeal to me. And this is another one. I'm like, but if they appeal to you, this is a super solid box set. Yeah. It's a hell of a set. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's got, I'm not going to even go through all the bonus features because it would be, we'd be here for 10 minutes just going through it. There's so much and been well recorded quite a bit while he was alive uh, and, you know, of just him being interviewed and talking about films and doing little weird stunts and all that shit is in here. Lots of film things, other people discussing aspects of the film. There's a lot to page. So in a pretty big book that comes with it. So if this is what you're looking for, if you're excited about this, then you're going to be super happy with what you get because it is, you know, I mean, it's the definitive set for that. I, I mean, you and I both said this is our first films by this director he had considerably more films than this and a lot of the extra bonus features reference those films and almost makes me want to go see them but i'm not going to <laughs> i actually watched one of the special features there they caught up with the two actresses who play the woman from obscure object and they talk about the casting process and how they landed in the role and what it was like to film and i actually watched that one um, and it was cool. It was a, like a lot of, I mean, it was, it's, it's a criterion special feature. Of course it was. No, cool. I, like, I watched a lot of the special features. I'm saying I wouldn't go, I, I'm not going to go watch oh, no, no, the I other films yeah. by him. <laughs> right. I get you. I was just saying, I, I happened to scratch the, the surface of the special features. Sure. No, I think there's enough there that, that, uh, I mean, that was interesting. Cause I'm like, even while I didn't enjoy watching these films on the whole, it left me with a lot of questions. And when I have questions like that about films, especially people take as seriously and love as much of this, I want to get some answers. Uh, you know, I want to know more about it. I want to feel like, why didn't I connect with this? And I feel like after watching enough, I've probably watched like two hours or so worth of special features. I feel like I got my answer that this is just what he was trying to do. Doesn't, it doesn't connect with outside of the time and the place. I don't know. Let's move on to our last film that, as mentioned in the very beginning of this, I when I saw this at a festival, I, everybody hated it so much they were angry, like fucking angry about it. I've only seen that happen once or twice before at a festival and people were like cursing and pissed and wanting to, you know, 
put the guillotine up for the director. Yeah, John is one of those people, apparently. And I was like going, look, I didn't like it either. It's not good, but you can't say it suffers from a lack of imagination or trying. It's like so thick with somebody trying to do something original that's kind of fascinating in and of itself. So I always kind of, I, I, we had an old rating system where the second lowest rating was rental and I gave it a rental at the time and I gave it a rental and everyone was like, you love Southland tales. I'm like, Oh, for fuck's sakes. You know? <laughs> but now, but now, now something happened, something switched in people's heads. I think it's maybe we, uh, the whole section of humanity just got a lot more pretentious or something. I don't know, but Southland tales to a certain circuit of especially film Twitter has become this unheralded masterpiece of goofiness. And I'm like, all right. So Arrow's putting out Southland Tales. I love Arrow releases. It's the new longer director's cut. And for fuck's sake, it's already long as shit as it is. I'm like, okay, this is by Richard Kelly, who did one of my, and I'm sorry, I'm just gonna say one of my favorite movies of all time is Donnie Darko. I've watched it a hundred times. I dissect it. I love it. Director's cut of it is terrible. Don't watch that one. Watch the original. It was great. He's never made another good thing after that. I think all his other movies are terrible. I'm like, maybe the benefit of time. And me coming already mildly soft on it, I'm like, I want to be one of those people who goes, no, those other people were wrong. This is kind of brilliant. And I think it was me who was wrong. This is absolute dreck, and I fucking hate it. <laughs> I walked out of this the first time I saw it, which, uh, and I'd forgotten what scene it was until it came up this time and made me almost turn the movie off. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, this was the part where I walked out. And it was like a little over an hour and a half into this three and a half hour thing. But it's the part where the lady on the beach is like begging the rock to let her p- perform fellatio on him. Uh-huh. And the rock keeps doing this. <laughs> yeah, he's got that weirdest kick ever. His nervous, yeah. oh, oh, what and, do I uh, do? And she's like, if you don't let me go down on you, I'm going to shoot myself. And at the time I, it was just another scene full of nonsense and like a movie that so far had been like wall to wall nonsense. And it was my breaking point the first time. And I was just like, life's too short. See you later. Like I'm, I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Did you um, leave the festival screening? Is that what happened? No. Yeah. I left the festival screening. Oh, wow. Yeah, I walked out. I've, I think I've so. only done that th- twice. During Fantastic Four, one of them was a Universal Soldier secret screening for one of the sequels. I was like, okay, this is not directed at me, so I'm just going to leave. <laughs> it was a little over an hour and a half in, so I'd given it a good fair shake. Most of the time, if I walk out of a fest screening, it's because I can't I can't stay awake. Yeah. And I'm not going to sit next to somebody like snoring. Yeah. So I've walked out a lot for that, for that reason. This particular movie. So I watched the can cut, a uh, con cans. How are we saying this it's, today? It's can, it is actually cans. And my mind keeps wanting to say it's cons because that sounds classier mm-hmm. than cans. But it apparently well, I it watched the cans, cans cut, which everyone is saying is so much, just significantly heads and tails, amazingly, so much better than the original cut. And you know what? It's this. It was the same movie. Like it, there was nothing that I saw where I was like, I don't remember that. Unless all the stuff is at the end and was after the stuff I walked out of. It was the same movie that I remember the same the first time around, which was it's you know this this weird very West Coast story about all the different kind of cult. If there's anything that unifies it thematically, it's the idea that the West Coast kind of fosters cult like mentality. Mm-hmm. So you have actual like environmental eco terrorist cults, and you have like weird militia type pockets of cults, and you have actually real militia, and you have like. Celebrities. It's about a, um, a 
a porn star and an an actor who or stunt is he a stuntman? What's the rock? He's like a he's uh, like an action star or stuntman, right? Yeah, I believe so. So he he and, I've all, and I just Sarah, watched this and my mind's already like Sarah Michelle though. Geller is a porn star and they write a book about the end of the world and there are things in the book or no a screenplay they write a screenplay about the end of the world and there are things in the, in the screenplay that attract the attention of all these different warring forces the different military and cults and things like that that are all sort of motivated by the existence of the prophecies within this screenplay. It's a mess, but yeah. it's like, but it's such a big colossal mess that it goes down with some of history's all time greatest messes, like yeah. Myra Breckenridge and like in the nineties, you know, North being like one that was like a huge all star mess. It, to me, it it's with those kind of movies where it's just like, it's so audacious and so kitchen sink and so stuffed full of stuff. It lives on a different plane than other normal bad movies. Um, <laughs> It's, I mean, those movies at least make sense to some degree. You watch them, you're like, okay, I get it. I mean, Myra Breckenridge is famously a little bit on the dull side, but, you know, Ishtar, I've watched more yeah. than once. The Waterworld, I'm like, these are redeemingly okay movies. A lot of the, the downside of those had to do with bad press at the time early on from a variety of reasons. Like, this is inescapably a movie that makes no fucking sense and is the, the product of a... Somebody who's had to have been on drugs, right? <laughs> what do you think about the cut? I mean, did you see us? Did you feel like there was a significant difference in the cut? It certainly, I mean, they all, it felt long either way. I, I didn't, I don't remember it because I saw this back when it came out. It was the last time I watched it. And I don't remember it well enough to say, oh, here's what the differences were in the cuts. I mean, okay, it, it, it's. I don't, if I was going to watch this again, which I can't picture happening, I would definitely not watch the director's cut again just to save myself 10 minutes or so. But Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I mean, people are like, oh, you had to read the comic. You had to do this. I had the comic. I read the comic. Still have it. It's just, it's just, I just think it's a mess. Yeah. There's, this is for someone. There are people out there keep talking, but they're so excited about it. I'm like, are you sure you remember this film correctly. <laughs> I don't know. Different people like different stuff. I feel like people are liking this just because it is so insane that it's cool to like it, but it's, there are lots of really insane films that aren't for everyone that are actually, I think pretty good. And this is not one of them. It's embarrassing. I felt embarrassed. That was my this. problem with the scene that I walked out on was it was a case of me going like, I, this is not like that. None of this, None of this that's happening in front of me is working for me. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to leave now. You guys can have your scene where she, she says, I'm going to shoot myself if I don't give you a blowjob. And I was just like, this is, I don't, who is this for? Yeah. Like, it was for Richard Kelly, the director. Yeah. That's who it was for. Like Kevin not. Smith and old age makeup for, for whatever reason. Like, is it insane? As if there are no old actors. There's an insane amount of actors in this too. Like you already said, Dwayne Johnson and Sarah Michelle Gellar was like Mandy Moore, Sean William Scott, Justin Timberlake, Miranda Richardson, Wallace Shawn, Bai Ling, Nora Dunn, John Larroquette, Kevin Smith, Amy Poehler, Wood Harris, Zelda Rubenstein, and one I think must have been one of her last films, uh, Beth Grant, Janine Garofalo, Will Sasso, John Lovitz. I mean, it's a crazy huge cast, and almost everyone is insanely miscast. 
like like some of the most egregious miscasting in history. Like John Lovitz is a badass take no prisoners cop. I mean, what? <laughs> I don't know. But there's a there's a few bonus features here. This comes with the theatrical cut and the cans cut. Uh, theatrical cut is two hours, 24 minutes, 54 seconds. Cans cut is two hours, 38 minutes and 32 seconds. There's an audio commentary by Richard Kelly that part of me was tempted to go back and watch with him talking about it. But no, I, I just can't do it, man. I just can't. Uh, there's It's a madcap world, the making of an unfinished film, which is a three-part thing that adds up being about 50 some minutes or so. I did not watch this either. Once again, it was like, I had just finished watching this. And I was like, I can't do it, man. I just can't. I really, really hate this movie. <laughs> There's a archival making up feature at about 30 minutes long called surveilling the Southland with interviews and what have you. There's an animated short set in the Southland tales universe called this is the way the world ends. It's about nine minutes long. And then there's trailers, image gallery, the insert booklet and what have you. But yeah, this is, it's not for me. It's for somebody. It sure ain't for me. Well, let's get to the big question, John. Do you know what the big question is? The big question is... The pick of the week. What is the pick of the week This is a John hard one. This Wilson. is a hard one. There's only one of these movies that I think I said that I, I was like, like positive on. Mm -hmm. And that movie is... Uh, Joint security area? Uh, the toy thing. What? We're not it's making not Toys of Terror the pick of the week. That's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> it's it's a movie so good I couldn't remember the title 30 minutes after talking about it. No, it is Joint Security Area. It is JSA. Okay. Uh, I wanted to say the toy movie as a joke and then couldn't remember the title, which somehow made the joke better, I think, <laughs> I think than I, it was to begin with. I mean, if I was going to pick, and I'm going to let it be Joint Security Area, but like I, I would go with Versus, even if it's not everybody's thing. I think it's such an incredible package they put together with that thing. And I think it really is a movie that if you've never seen and you like action movies and you like video games, then you really got to see it. It might be like, whoa, and blow off the top of your head. But uh, JSA is like great package, great movie, important start to an important filmmaker's career. Well worth your time. This has been Digital Noise featuring my friend John Golson, who you can find online. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Golson, G-H-O-L-S-O-N. Anything to promote? You got a comic coming out or anything oh, like that? Oh, no, I don't. I mean, no, not right now. I don't have anything to promote. Okay. Nope. Maybe, maybe next time. Maybe next time. <laughs> and then Aaron Whittle was the one joining us in the mid-section there. I'll be back relatively soon with more Digital Noise. Thanks for listening, everybody.